Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's turn to Exhibit C, the price of oil. Well, first of all, let's look at Exhibit E, which is gas. That's the bottom of Exhibit E. As what's happened to the oil price has been pretty much a downtrend. You can see if you go back to early 22, the pumped oil price was 85. And by the time you got out three years, it was 68. So pretty, pretty significant backwardation. Then when we get to the middle of 22, the prompt oil price is 108. And the price out three years from there was 79. But now at the end of 23, I guess the good news is the backwardation isn't as much. The prompt price last Thursday was 70. When you get out three years, the price was 68. So I guess that's progress, but the price of oil is has declined. We'll come back to gas in a second. We turn to C, which is a picture of supply and demand in the world for oil. I think what's happened is supply is higher for 23 than, than these numbers. We're trying to find some reasonable numbers to update 23, just about finished and have a better forecast for 24. But I think the 101.2, which is all liquids, that includes NGLs and all kinds of, it's not just crude, that's the way it's reported. I I think the supply is more in 101.2, and I think the supply in 24 is going to be more than 102.6. The tricky part of this is if we look at Saudi Arabia, they did 10.4 and 22. It pretty easily do 11, and they're down at lower than 9.3. So Russia doesn't really live to their commitments to reduce production, but they have logistic issues and sanctions and whatnot. So they're probably lower than 10.1. But the United States at 12.7 is currently running 13.3. So you know, I, I just think supply is outrunning demand. If you look at the liquid fuel consumption estimate for 24, 102.8. Here again, China, which is expected to increase a bit each year, is probably flat. The U.S. and Europe, the developed countries, Japan, is is if you go back any number of years, it's pretty flat. So oil demand increases very dependent on China, which is getting more mature and is having a slow rebound, to say the least, from their COVID lockdowns, become very dependent on other Asia and places that are growing. So the tricky part of this is that the oil price would be much lower if you didn't have curtailed production, especially Saudi Arabia curtailing by 2 million barrels. So Holding the price where it is depends importantly on the Saudis continuing to curtail production and also to, to the 
Russian logistic issues. Natural gas is worse. If we turn to Exhibit B, same kind of phenomenon. Uh, the demand for natural gas is going up. You see that LNG feed gas line goes up by uh, a bee and a half a day or two bees a day. The problem is, and, and fortunately, power, having been flat forever, has been going up about two bees a day per year. But uh, the problem is supply is going up more. Let's just look at production, U.S. production. 2020 was 90, 21 was 91, but then all of a sudden you had this big jump in 22 to 95, then 102 and 23, 104. I mean, the forecast here for is for it to slow down a little bit, but you know it's already running 104 late 23. Now, where is it coming from? If you look up the paragraph just ahead, the Permian is up five. Ainsville is up three. Marcellus, which is our largest gas field, isn't up very much. So, you know, it's not that demand is behaving poorly, but supply is just overwhelming demand. Just a couple of words about Exhibit A, which is a cash flow statement for our government. It does appear to be the case that interest rates are going to be somewhat lower. So that column of interest, which was $330 billion in 2018, and now predicted for 24 is going to be $740 billion. That's a big, big increase, $400 billion. Uh, that $74 billion, I mean, that, that's getting up there. It's getting close to what we spend on defense. Fortunately, it looks as though inflation is coming down and interest rates are going to come down. The other thing I think is happening from a political point of view, and I'm, I'm not really qualified, I, other than trying to keep up with it in terms of having a view for investing purposes, I do think that the trend in the Congress and in the you know key Republican senators is to really clamp down on spending. So that spending and all other that has gone from $910 billion uh, in 2019, the year before COVID, to $1.41 billion. That probably came out 1.5. Those are preliminary numbers for 23. I think that's going to start to, some of that $500 billion gap is going to start to be rolled back. And that's important. The other important thing is to somehow rationalize our healthcare system so that our, our Medicare, Medicaid expense would be uh, lower. But at the very least, I think the mood has changed in Congress. Look at the trouble they're having trying to get aid through to Israel or aid through the Ukraine. They say they have to tie it to border security. But I think there's kind of an overall perception out there uh, that, that the tide has turned and having the government spend less money is very important. Let's, let's go all the way to uh, the front of the 20 pages. We focused the last two weeks, two Wednesdays ago on could anyone reach or exceed Apple at $85 billion of free cash flow on page one. And I think we came to the conclusion that maybe Alphabet had a chance. Microsoft probably had the best chance. Maybe Amazon, as they kind of curtail spending and whatnot, would have a chance. And then last week, we talked about who was, who was growing. And I think we want to stay in that in that in that mode for another couple of Wednesdays, especially over year end. If we go back to page one, Apple isn't growing. You can see their free cash flow for their 12-month period, their fiscal year to September 30, their free cash flow is actually 
down by $9 billion. The revenue was down by $11 billion. Alphabet was up nicely. Tesla kind of challenged. They're down. The page that was updated last weekend is the next page, Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, and Oracle. Mike and Jason have been saying it all along during these Wednesday meetings, but Microsoft had a really good first quarter. They're a June 30 fiscal year. They're, they're three months to September. Their free cash flow is up almost $2 billion, and their revenue was up $6 billion. And we'll pause on Microsoft because this is something that, that Mike and Jason have, have identified and should get credit for. Just by way of introduction, that free cash flow of $59 billion for Microsoft, I think if renting AI, you know, AI capacity to business and individual accounts and whatnot could have a significant impact on that free cash flow number. I forget who the proponent for this is. Let's try Jason on that subject. Uh, would you give it a 50% chance to add like 10 billion to the free cash flow line if, if Microsoft is able to uh, get enough people to to rent AI capacity uh, coming off Azure or just being made available by Microsoft? Yeah, I think it's it very well could be greater than 50%. The impact of these AI tools is is going to be pretty large. So the most mature of, of Microsoft's AI tools are, is the, the co-pilot that helps software engineers write code. They've had that product in market long enough where they they have statistics around how much more productivity these employees get. And it's 55% more productivity out of a single engineer. Um, so then they start, if that translates to the rest of the, the office users, um, you know, it's really a no brainer to spend tens of dollars a month per employee at your company to, um, to buy the co-pilot license. Right. And what we estimated was if, I think we said a quarter of their Office 365 sub subscribers, if they were paying an additional $30 a month, we would see an additional $30 billion in free cash flow each year. Good Lord. That, that gets you to more than 50% probability of getting another 10. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I, well, and I think I think the actual server expenditures they're going to be spending a lot in capex, so that'll get wiped out. So the, the where the free cash flow actually will come from is probably from the office products, less than just adding compute to resell it. Because I think they're going to use that to finance the expansion of their data centers. Right. I talked to Mike about this. Get so Jason on this one too. Google has announced that they're you're going to be able to do that from a a pixel phone and the question i've been asking mike which i pass on to jason do you think that all of us dedicated to our iphones do you think we're going to have an iphone in one pocket and a pixel phone in the other because we can run language programs on the on pixel and it'll take uh, apple a while to catch up on their iphone well the apple ecosystem is pretty sticky so i think I think before you decide you're going to make a switch, Apple will have come out with a new phone or a solution to offer the same capabilities. I, I'll also add that even the Gemini model, the one that's small enough to run on the phone, it's not very good um, relative to what we're, we're all now kind of accustomed to GPT-4 or GPT-4 Turbo or whatever they're calling the latest one. And 
that's not the level of performance that you're going to get in a nano model. Uh, and by nano model, I mean a, a model that runs on a local edge device like a phone or a laptop. That said, the capability of these things, the growth is exponential. So I would expect that over time, they will get very good. Oh, yeah. And if we know anything about Apple is that they tend to wait. They're not exactly first to market with a new feature ever. But when it comes to market on the iPhone, it's generally better than others. Yeah, and, and the first push was to get these models working, uh, producing the best results as they could. And to do that, they made them larger and larger. And now the focus is on, can we get the same results out of a ever-shrinking model? Um, and every week, one of these companies comes up with a, a new press release about how their model outperforms the current state of the industry. Um, this week, I think Microsoft is the one. So, you know, maybe the question is, will we all have Microsoft phones? <laughs> 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 Highly <laughs> unlikely, right? <laughs> right, right. Another page updated over the weekend is the Walmart page, page eight. Walmart is our largest retailer. It is the competitor to Amazon. We're going to swing back to Amazon in a second. And it is a marvelous company. But look at the difference in free cash flow generation between Walmart at, say, $17 billion and Lowe's and Home Depot at 13 and 21 I mean, the, the sales level at Lowe's and Home Depot are, you know, Walmart's $640 billion, Lowe's is around 90 Home Depot is around 150 But bringing it down to free cash flow is... is uh, you know, if if you're Walmart, you must look at that 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 characteristic of Lowe's and Home Depot and get very envious. I don't. I'm not no real expert. I'm a long-term Lowe's stockholder, happy Lowe's stockholder, but it is remarkable when you consider Amazon. This is all the way back to page four, and you consider who can possibly challenge them on logistics. Let's. Let's just put Amazon Web Services aside, the same product that Microsoft has with Azure. The logistics part of Amazon is going to be very, very difficult for anyone to compete with. And I suppose the only one would be Walmart. But even Walmart, you know, would have a tough time catching up with Amazon. So when when we talk about proprietary positions or votes or whatever we call them, and the progress the new CEO uh, Jesse's making succeeding Bezos, and we're talking about who can catch Apple at uh, ninety billion dollars. What do you think the chances of uh, Amazon catching Apple? I think it's realistic. I mean, it's become the everything store, and once they get the economics really worked out for this same day delivery, um, I think we're going to see pretty rapid ramp in free cash flow. Right. You see any any bumps in the road, Jason, for Amazon? CapEx for AWS keeps growing rapidly. It's more than half of their CapEx budget now this year, um, and it's going to keep growing into the, the foreseeable future. So as they're, they're always catching up or staying ahead, you know, uh, buying more compute power so AWS remains the clear leader in the hyperscalers. Um, you know, that's, that's going to hold them back from having free cash flow like Apple does. Right. Do you think having their own uh, GPU chips will help on the CapEx or 
put another way is Amazon and Google having their own GPU designs uh, a risk for, for NVIDIA? Or will they be buying just as many GPU chips from NVIDIA as they might otherwise? That, or how, how, does, how does that look in terms of impact on NVIDIA and also impact on Amazon's CapEx and Microsoft's CapEx? Yeah, I don't think it's... I don't think it's a huge risk to NVIDIA. NVIDIA's chips are used for training the algorithms and really they're buying the NVIDIA chips also to rent back out to their AWS and Azure customers um, because they're also doing training and, and Amazon and, and Microsoft don't know the exact workload that their customers are going to put on those chips. Um, their, custom, their custom silicon, though, the, the custom GPUs and TPUs are really geared towards their models that they know are stable. Um, and, and that's that build out for that is really just getting started. Um, and as we see use cases that are all this, the technology moves in an exponential fashion, right? What wasn't good enough yesterday is now, you know, tomorrow will be more than good enough for certain applications. And those, once you hit that good enough layer, that's where, Amazon wants to transition the workloads onto their own silicon, if that makes sense. If right. NVIDIA will always be necessary, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, to continue to push the envelope of capability. Yeah, I guess the threat would be as if they had software models mature enough where customers are going to demand that they train on an Amazon or a Microsoft-specific model, and then the training chips that are NVIDIA GPUs today, then those can be, um, you know, customized for that data center. That that would be a threat, but we're we're definitely not there yet. Right, and, and right. I would also say that nobody's pushing the edge of capability, which historically has never really happened, so. Right, right. In terms of growth of free cash flow, if you turn to page six, these are refreshed numbers for AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, and you can see if you go down to the change in the interim, which is nine months for each of the companies, there isn't much sales growth, actually sales decline for uh, Verizon T-Mobile. There's not that much EBITDA growth, although T-Mobile has pretty good growth in EBITDA. But the CapEx is lower because I guess they're, they're winding up and building out their 5G. So the free cash flows, you know, up in a significant way with you know 10 or 15 percent uh, with each of these companies. So, I mean, I think the preferred way to get to increase free cash flow is to have increased sales and EBITDA and flat capital spending. But another way to get to better free cash flow is to have a decline in capex. You people have have spent plenty of time looking at build out to 5G. I mean, it, is it a fair or better than a 50-50 chance that? For these three, it's basically their capex will basically decline in the next couple of years since the, they probably overbuilt for 5G demand. Uh, or how does it look to you? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good assumption because I, I think that we won't have any new spectrum auctions uh, until after the election, the earliest. And right. the messaging from all the CEOs is basically that they're, they've, they've got plenty of capacity. So it's an interesting market because with three players, you can have 
um, you can expect that they're going to act a lot more rationally and less and expect less cannibalization. But, you know, with a potential fourth network player and then the cable companies also acting as wireless carriers, you could end up with more price competition. But as of right now, it doesn't seem to be as price competitive of a market as it maybe has been in the past. So that's a good sign for them to be able to hold the line on margins as well. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. We haven't talked healthcare in a couple of Wednesdays. Go back to page 15. Fair amount of news on Vertex Pharmaceutical. Really kind of uh, groundbreaking uh, therapy. They uh, got approved with CRISPR. Just want to spend a few minutes on that, Jason. Yeah, Vertex has two big, big items in, since last time we've spoke about them. The approval of Exacel, which the brand name is Cascavi. That is their cure, essentially, for sickle cell disease. That was approved along with Bluebird Bios, same kind of therapy. They'd be going down in the weeds to differentiate the two, but uh, the clear winner seems to be the Vertex CRISPR combination. And it happens to be priced nearly a million dollars cheaper per, per treatment. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer for healthcare in general as the first gene editing cures for diseases are starting to come out. The, the second bit of news is on their, their pain therapy, the VX548 research. So that, that was actually released early, late last night or early this morning. They released the, the results of their phase two study on diabetic neuropathy, so, so nerve pain. Um, this is in contrast with their phase threes that are ongoing on acute pain, like tissue pain. The results out of this were, were pretty significant, so it had... It had a significant reduction in pain. It performed slightly better than the, the drug Lyrica, which is currently used to treat this um, with a better side effect profile. So the results out of that were, were well received by the market. Uh, the stock's up pretty heavily today, whereas I think the market was anticipating approval of XSL. So it kind of didn't react on that news. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, the, yeah. the pain thing we think has a lot of upside. Uh, I think the market and the world kind of demands and needs a non-opioid painkiller. So yeah, um, this is really but promising. Both of these have a huge impact on, you know, on, on people's lives. So the, the life expectancy, if you have a severe case of sickle cell is, uh, I don't, I don't think you're expected to live much past 40 years old. So this is really going to be a, a life changer literally for, for these people. And what do we say? A hundred thousand patients in the U S 32,000. And how many in Saudi Arabia? Nearly that many as well. Right. Yeah. It was the same, essentially the same numbers. So um, that was surprising to me and I, I kind of relevant as, as their economy becomes more relevant in the world economy. I've read some articles. Can, uh, while we've got a few minutes left, can you just run us through if, if you're a sickle cell patient in Saudi Arabia, say, 
you, you're, you're, I mean, it's a very expensive treatment. The total process is, is several months long, as I understand it. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. no walk in the park. It's, it's, it's a pretty grueling treatment. So the first is they have to harvest bone marrow cells from your body um, that then gets sent off for testing. And ultimately they use a CRISPR gene editing uh, technique to, to modify this, the, modify the genetic code in such a way that your bone marrow cells will not make uh, red blood cells the traditional way. And it falls back to uh, how the, how a fetus would generate red blood cells. So you have a kind of a backup copy of a method to generate red blood cells. Um, so they're programming the cells to fall back on that. Um, contrasting with Bluebird Bios, they're inserting genetic code, new genetic code to um, program your your more traditional pathway of, of creating the red blood cells. Um, so when, when that occurs, then you're hospitalized for at least a month. Uh, you undergo a chemotherapy to kill off your existing um, bone marrow cells. The transplant occurs, uh, and then they have to monitor you while, while your body uh, replicates those cells and starts you know, regrowing your bone marrow. So it's, it's the, the treatment costs $2.2 million and that doesn't include the month long stay in the hospital. So it's, it's an expensive and uh, months long process. Absolutely. But you're adding decades to someone's life. Through phase three trials, presumably some individuals in our country or somewhere else have gone through the whole process. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and they, and they're so happy with it. You know, it's, it's, it's so life-changing that Vertex was using them <laughs> to kind of lobby the FDA for approval. You know, they, they had these people speak at conferences. Um, there's even some anecdotes that it's, it's so improves people's lives that they, they have some emotional um, trauma that, that they, they had identif identified so much with a, as a person that had severe sickle cell. Um, and then, you know, in a way that identity was taken away from them. So they, they have to readjust to life as a healthier person. This type of treatment for other diseases is, is not necessarily vertex, but other pharma companies or medical companies working away in phase one, two, or even phase three trials to use the type of gene editing against diseases like sickle cell or or will blue sickle cell be kind of kind of a one of a kind for the moment uh, there's quite a few of them actually but the the exciting long-term thing would be to be able to do this what they would say is in vivo so in the body rather than having to pull something out of the body modify it and then put it back in um, so that would make this more scalable potentially as a solution. Um, so you, you see that the, the, the ones that companies are focused on right now are the really expensive diseases to treat or they are rare and significantly alter the lifespan of the people that get those diseases. In the case of sickle cell, it was a, a pretty easy edit to the genetic code to, to cure this disease. Um, Versus other ones are, you know, a combination of a large combination of genes that are it's harder to predict the outcomes. Um, exactly. Mm. 
it's uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable and really quite an achievement. Just before we before we break, and I look for Mike and Jason to comment on this. We spent some time earlier in the year looking at Moderna and BioNTech under the theory that the uh, they weren't going to need you weren't going to need the COVID COVID vaccines, but that you had real technology in both places, especially possibly with BioNTech, where they would develop vaccines for cancer or other diseases. And when you go down on page uh, 15, without the COVID cash flow, and I haven't checked, but I think that Moderna cash flow and the, and the BioNTech cash flow would be lower than, than is predicted here. We did have cash balances that had piled up about $9 billion in Moderna and $18 billion in BioNTech so that they could support their effort for R&D and SDNA and so forth, work on these new medicines. The great advantage of Vertex Pharmaceutical or, or Lentis, which we'll cover next week, I hope, is that there, there already is free cash flow. So rather than relying on a cash balance, Vertex Pharmaceutical, we have about $3.5 billion of free cash flow. And this is after you know, $3 billion of R&D spending. So with those two advances, the sickle cell and then the non-opioid pain medicine, and still, after all the work on those, still have free cash flows, you know, kind of unique and, and uh, more attractive from, in terms of a risk-reward uh, uh, point of view. Any, any closing comments, Mike or Jason, on that characteristic of Vertex versus something like Biontech? No, that right on, spot on. I think the risk reward for Biontech's getting really interesting, though. Um, as they keep, as Pfizer really keeps lowering their expectations for the, the revenue from COVID treatments, it hurts Biontech. And the enterprise value of Biontech is about half of what the sheet has now. It's it's somewhere around $5 billion. So it's it's less than it was going into COVID. Yeah, pretty exciting. Like the, the, what we really need to see is them focus a little more on their promising candidates. Um, they, they really invested heavily in a bunch of different areas. And the, the ideal thing is they hone in on the high probability um, treatments and get those all the way through. Yeah. In the last few Wednesdays, we've been neglecting healthcare a bit. We'll commit ourselves to doing at least 10 minutes on last 10 minutes on healthcare the next couple of Wednesdays. And with that, we're through the 30 minutes. Everyone be well and stay healthy. Talk next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. 
the hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. Thank you.